Open up in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. We are jumping right in. I'm sorry, Romans 12. I know we did Romans 12 last week, but we're going to read a little bit of Romans 12. Romans 12, verse uh, 9. Romans 12, 9. Let love be genuine. Oh, sorry. Stand for the reading of God's word. Totally forgot. Blanked. Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and show hospitality. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and, and the hope that we have in it that's, that's given to us through your word. I pray that tonight as we discuss uh, how we live out this faith, how we live out our, our love for you, that it would be clear to us that you would help us to apply it to our lives and that you would speak through me this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. So last week, Luke preached to us about all of Romans 12. And one of those, middle, in the, right in the middle of Romans 12, is this command to let love be genuine. And, and that command really comes under this umbrella or this theme of not being uh, conform to this world, to be transformed by the renewal of our, our minds, and to present our lives and our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. And in Romans 13, what we'll see is Paul is fleshing that out even further. And at the end of Romans 12, what he does is he shifts from, from loving the church, loving the community that God has placed us in, to when we're persecuted, what do we do? What does Romans 12, 14 say? Anyone? Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who persecute you. So he starts to shift it to not only loving our neighbors, loving those who are like us, but also to loving those who are our enemies. And we don't totally grasp that right now, like this Roman church would have. This Roman church wouldn't have just seen the Roman Gentile Christians persecuted, ostracized, but they would have also seen their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters persecuted by their own people. They were rejected. They were, like Paul did to people before he was saved, dragged off to be imprisoned or killed. And so they knew what what it meant to really have an enemy. It wasn't just someone that gossiped about them at school or, or ghosted them, if we want to use the, the term from the game. There we go. Look at me. I'm relevant. Um, but it was someone who re- like physically harmed them. They had an idea of what, what that looked like. And worst of all, this persecution was coming from their government, from the leaders that, that were over them. And so Paul, God, through Paul, commands them to bless those who persecute them, don't curse them, live in harmony with one another, uh, don't grow prideful, 
And never, verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Bring him shame is what that means. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Paul has shifted the focus from our own community to how we interact with those around us, including and especially focused on our enemies. And he continues this thought process because it would have been easy for them, for this church to immediately jump to the government or the the leaders over them, the bosses who fired them, things like that, because those were the people persecuting them. It wasn't one of their peers or someone on the same level, but it was the government officials. Sure, it hadn't gotten as bad as as it does under Nero, under a, a few decades or the next generation later, but they were being persecuted by those who they really had no power against. And that was where we get to Romans 13. And in verse one, it says, let them every person be subject to the governing authorities. So Paul has shifted the focus, not just from loving those around us, but also, and here's our three points today. It's how we can live out our faith in love, and that's by loving those who are above us, loving those around us, and loving him who saved us. So point number one, loving those above us. Romans 13, 1. Let every person be subject to, to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. I mean, this is a clear, and honestly, like the more, the more our culture shifts, and the more our government shifts, it's a hard verse for us to hear. It's a clear but difficult verse, especially for the Christians in Rome, especially for both the Gentiles and the Jews, like we already talked about. The Gentiles were being ostracized by their community. They were or left out or pushed to the fringes because they weren't polytheistic. They weren't partaking in cultural norms. Uh, there were prominent people speaking out against Christianity, even just blatantly getting it wrong, thinking that they were cannibals, saying uh, just lies about them. It hadn't gotten as bad as it was going to, though. People weren't being burned as torches for Caesar's parties. People weren't just being dragged off in the streets yet. They weren't being blamed for the fire that destroys Rome. The religious leaders, though, were doing some of that for the Jewish Christians. They were being dragged off. They were being imprisoned. Paul would have been known exactly what they were doing and why they were doing it because he did that before he was saved. Even with how hard this is for them to hear, it's a very clear command to be subject to our governing authorities and he gives us the reason why. For there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. I mean, it's, it's, it's clear. God is sovereign over all things, even the authorities who run nations, even the authorities who run cities, even the leaders who hate Christianity and speak out against him and live contrary to his commands. God has placed them in authority. 
They're placed over us by God, and we must be subject to them. But he doesn't go so far to say as obey. And I'm not saying that we should be looking for ways to disobey the law. We should be, we're not, I'm not saying to subvert the law. But what I'm saying is that Paul is leaving room for us to recognize that God is the ultimate authority. Because he knows that these governing authorities will eventually turn against Christianity if they haven't already, which in this culture they had. What he's saying is that we must obey the laws that are in line with scripture. But as soon as we are commanded to do something that God commands us not to do, then we disobey that law. We respect authority. We give them honor, as we'll see in a second. But there is room for us to obey God alone when governing authorities stand stand against him. So who are these governing authorities for us today? Who would, who would fall under this category? It's pretty simple. It would be our local, like the Tatchby government, then county, state, national. But there's other implications as well. There's, there's your parents, there's teachers, the administration at your school. And even, at least on Thursday nights, your youth group leaders, the security team, those are the authorities that God has placed over you. So he says to be subject to them, and then he continues on. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong... Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue, 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 to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Again, this is a very clear passage. It packs a lot into these few verses, but it's, it's pretty clear. God has placed governments in authority. They're meant to enforce good conduct. If you don't want to fear them, if you don't want to be afraid of the law, then do good. Obey the law. If you do wrong, then yeah, you should be afraid of judgment. You should be afraid of, of being punished for what, what you have done. Because they are meant for good, we are required by God to submit to them. To follow the laws that they put into place. And that's not just because we don't want God's wrath, he says, but it's also for the sake of having a clear conscience. Because you know when you disobey even your parents and you hide it from them, you lie about it, every time it starts to come close to talking about it or bringing broad into the light, what happens? You get stressed out, you get nervous, you get a little fidgety. It's the same principle here. If you don't want to be afraid of the, of the law, of, um, of police officers, then obey the law. They were meant for good and we were required to submit to them. God has essentially 
given them authority. He's a, not that he's passed off his authority, but he has delegated it to them. It's similar to when you, your parents would go out for a date night and would get you a babysitter. Who was in charge? The babysitter. What happens if you didn't listen to the babysitter? You'd get in trouble. The parents' wrath. Thank you, Grayson. You got a babysitter. Well, it could have been your grandparents, an older sibling, a family friend. By obeying them, you were also obeying who? Your parents. Your parents. Thank you. And then God. Yes. That's the, the good answer. Um, but if you didn't obey, you'd get in trouble. But if they did, told you to do something you weren't allowed to do, what would you say? No. Why? Because you're not allowed to do that. And it's the same principle with the governing authorities. That we obey when it is in line with scripture. But as soon as they command us to do something that is not in line with scripture, we disobey. And part of submission is accepting the penalty or the punishment for our disobedience. Knowing that we are still bringing glory to God. So when is it acceptable to disobey your rulers? When they command you to do something that's out of line with scripture. I mean, we see this happen in scripture. Daniel in the lion's den, he was thrown in the lion's den because he refused to worship the the king at that time instead of God. He he went there willingly too. He didn't fight it, but he he submitted himself to the law of the country and trusted God. Not saying that if you disobey and you face death, that God will save your earthly life. But even if he doesn't, you are still bringing him glory and pleasing him. Or we see that with Paul and the apostles and really Christians throughout history. But we see it in Acts that Paul and the apostles are punished for continuing to preach the gospel, even though the Jewish leaders commanded them not to. I mean, we've seen it even with churches... I don't know if you guys have heard of this pastor, but James Coates up in Canada during the COVID restrictions, they kept meeting because God commands us to not forsake the gathering of the saints, to meet even when we're commanded to not by our governing authorities. Being subject to the governing authorities, the people over us, does not mean completely obeying every command. If it's in line with scripture, we obey. If it's not, we don't. And that does take discernment. That doesn't mean that as soon as you think a, a verse is saying you don't have to do something, that you don't just do it. But it takes discernment. It takes wisdom. It takes pouring over the scriptures. Amidst in, the, in 2020, our elders met and looked over Romans 13, looked over many texts before deciding to reopen, even though California said not to. And when we disobey, like I said, you have to be submissive to the punishment. Ultimately, fighting the punishment is going against God. Because God says that we should never avenge ourselves. Romans 12, 19 to 21, I already read it, but it says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. 
Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We don't take vengeance. We trust that God will one day take vengeance, and we can do so knowing that our lives are eternal, that this life is not it. But if you are in Christ, we have been saved for all eternity. So the application for this text is is brief and clear. We obey the authorities over us. We're subject to them when it lines up with scripture. And when it doesn't, we prove it and are submissive to the punishment. And by putting ourselves in submission to the authorities that God has put over us and loving them, that's what 12, 19 to 21 is saying, is to love your enemies. By doing so, we are loving and honoring God. We are pleasing him. We're offering our lives as a living sacrifice to him. So that's how we love those who are above us. And then he shifts in, looks to loving those who are around us. Verse eight. Owe nothing to any, or no, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now this isn't pro, a prohibition against uh, loans or borrowing money. There's, actually laws and commands on how we ought to do that and how that we pay back what we borrow and we should expect people to ask to borrow from us. No, this is saying, it's saying how we extend love to others and fulfill the law. Leviticus 19.13 says, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Give someone what they are due. That's what this verse, Romans 13, 8, is saying, give people their due. And everyone is owed love. Everyone is owed a Christ-like love, a loving of our enemies. Proverbs 3, 27 says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is, it is due when it is in your power to do it. Saying when saying when you have the ability, do not withhold good from someone. If you can offer someone your coat, offer them your coat. If someone's fallen down and you can pick them up, pick them up. And it goes even beyond that. Our church is really good at doing that. When someone's in need, our church fills that need and is looking to fill that need immediately. That's Primarily, I mean, you guys only have so much ability to do so, but that's primarily the generations above you. So look to them as they model Christ. Do not withhold good from those or from whom it is due. At the most basic level, even if you have no money in your budget to give to someone, no way to be generous financially, you can be generous with love. And he really fleshes this out. He's talking about the law in verse 9, and he says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not, shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Thirteen nineteen Romans 13, 9, or 10, sorry, is profound. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling of the law. And this line is, this is in line with Jesus' statement at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 17 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And Jesus completely fulfilled the law. He loved his neighbor as himself. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. What God commanded him to do, he did it perfectly. Everything he did was in line with the law. And it didn't just mean that that he strictly obeyed the Ten Commandments as they mean on the surface level. Yeah, he did not murder. He did not steal. He did not do any of those things. But he looked at the deeper application of it and lived it out as he really commands in the Sermon on the Mount. He wasn't unrighteously angry with someone. He didn't lust after anyone. He loved both his enemy and his friend. He never lied, cheated, or stole. And he fully fulfilled the law, including the sacrifices. It's because of his sacrifice on the cross and then his resurrection that we have life, that we put our faith in him, that what he did was enough for our salvation. And then we make him our Lord and follow his commandments. And the application for this passage is clear, and it is simple. Love your neighbor as yourself. The easiest way to apply this, the easiest way to look at this, is really found in two passages. One from last week, Romans 12, 9 to 18. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love no one or love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what you do, or but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's really how we ought to be living our lives. We look to do good to everyone. But that doesn't look with love in scripture is not the same as worldly love. The world would say that love is is allowing people to live however they want, to be tolerant, to uh, let them do whatever makes them the most happy. That's not what love is. Scripture tells us that loving people sometimes looks like calling them out on their sin. Sometimes looks, looks like telling them what they're doing is wrong and the only way to salvation is Jesus Christ. Loving people is pointing people to Jesus because by doing what Jesus commands, we are living the best possible life. And it may not look like that compared to earthly success, but in the eyes of God, living out his commands is the most pleasing to him and will bring us the most joy. Another passage that that we don't have time to look at tonight, but that speaks to this, is Matthew 5. If you want to look at how we ought to live with the Ten Commandments, read through Matthew 5. It makes it utterly clear. Look beyond the surface of the law on how you can live out Christ-like love. And really, this 
This comes down to how well you know God. Because the better you know God, I said this on Sunday, the better you know God, the more likely you will be to live out his law, to live out how he has called us to live. And in most situations, you know how you should live. Even if in the moment you gave into sin, you immediately know that what you did is wrong. Have you trained yourself to live according to scripture? Have you trained your mind to know the things of God? Have you trained your heart to desire the things of God? If you aren't in Christ, there's no way you can do that. It's only when we put our faith in Jesus that we are given a new heart, that we are given a new spirit that wants to obey. Have you made Jesus your Lord and are you living like it? That's what Paul is calling us to evaluate. That's what he's calling us to ask ourselves. So we love God. We love is genuine when we love those above us and we love those around us. And finally, when we love him who saved us. Romans 13, 11 to, uh, to 14. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. It's pretty, it's pretty obvious this isn't a call for the Romans to wake back up while they listen to this letter. This is a call to urgency. That we know the time. We can discern the times pretty quickly. That Jesus is coming back and so there's a short amount of time before he returns. This is a call to wake up because salvation is at hand. These are the last days. This is the portion of redemptive history that is heading in the direction of what comes or what's described in Revelation. These are the final days and we have a short amount of time. We can be lulled to sleep though. We know the truth that that the clock is ticking down. And yet we are lulled to sleep. It's easy for us to, to not remember or not have at the forefront of our minds that we have to act with urgency, that we've been commanded to act with urgency. We can be tricked into thinking that it's just like we're in a waiting room before heaven, but that's not the case. We, we can't be caught sitting and waiting. We aren't in the locker room. We are in the waiting room. It's showtime. Now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. You know the time. Scripture is clear. It is honest. It is objective. God has called us to action. And he uses wartime language. Verse 12, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on what? The armor of light. Let us, walk, <clears throat> let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That is, that is clear language. It is a call to arms. It is a call to put on the armor of light. This is a battle mindset. We are to act now. And it's easy to start scrambling when you hear alarm bells, like when a, when a fire alarm is pulled, everyone immediately reacts. And if you haven't practiced, there's a bit of a scramble. But this is, I mean, this is simple. The application is difficult. But understanding it is simple. Know the time. This is it. Cast off the works of darkness. Kill your sin. 
put on the armor of light, act righteously. And this is in every book in the Bible. Every sermon gets to this point. To kill your sin and act in the way that God has called you to. Sometimes it's a very specific command, but this time it is, you know what to do. Put off unrighteousness, put on righteousness. Put off the flesh, kill it. We've crucified the flesh and put on the fruits of the spirit. Walk properly as in the light. That's right. That's the application right there. And it's difficult, not because it's not understandable, but because we are still fighting our flesh. Remember in Romans 7, Paul says he does the very thing that he doesn't want to do. That in his new heart, in his new spirit, he wants to obey God, but he still struggles with sin. That's where the difficulty comes in. Not in our lack of understanding, but in our lack of desire. So when we kill sin, we don't just kill the action, but we look for the, the desire in our hearts. What are you wanting so bad that you are willing to disobey God to get it? That's the question you have to ask yourself. You have to look at the core of who you are and work out those desires. And honestly, a lot of the times, that desire is for a good thing that God has given to us. We're just taking it in a sinful way. An easy way to look at at temptation and desire is to look at Jesus in the wilderness. When Satan tempted him, he tempted him with things that God already promised to Christ. Satan tempted him with authority over all, all the earth. And it wasn't that Jesus wasn't ever going to get it. What Satan was tempting him with was skipping the cross, skipping the suffering that he was going to have to go through. He's saying, Jesus, you're about to start your three years of ministry, which will end in, in you being on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's just skip all that. And if you bow to me, you can have it all. Or bread. He offers him food, knowing that Jesus can do whatever, has the power to turn rocks into bread. Or he commands, he says, Jesus, if you jump off of of the top of the temple, you know God's angels will save you. He tempts Jesus with things he already has. And he tempts us in the same way. He's tempting us with desires for good things that are gifts from God. But he promises them to us without the sanctifying work to get them. If we truly love Christ, we will seek to obey him. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And that's not a a stipulation that our status of friendship with with Christ is ever swaying, but he's saying that you will show your friendship with me by obeying me, that you'll want to obey. Not that you can lose this status of friend with Christ, but if you've put your faith in him, you are friends with Jesus. And if we are friends with Christ, we will obey him. Our genuine love will show in our obedience. This teaching is is clear. Romans 13 is easy to understand. Difficult to apply because of our sinful nature. And it's been summed up well. Paul says, or really God through Paul says, let love be genuine. Don't be conformed to this world. 
obey the Ten Commandments, that is succinct. Augustine, the great theologian, also says it well. He says, love God and do whatever you want. Now, it doesn't mean that you can sin. But what he's saying is that if you love God, what you want will be pleasing to him. That your heart will be in line with God's heart. And you will want to do those things. If you love God, you will have the same desires of him. You will put on the armor of light. You'll walk properly as in the daytime. You'll love your neighbor as yourself. And you'll submit to the authorities that God's put over you. It's simple, but it takes work. Are you willing to do the work? Let's pray. God, thank you for the clear commands of scripture that we can understand them easily. But I pray that you would give us the strength to obey them. I pray that you would work on our hearts, give us wisdom and discernment to look at what we most desire and to put the, the way we live that out in line with who you are and how you have called us to live. I pray over our small group time that, that we would be able to work through these questions, work through these uh, difficulties, and that our conversations would be glorifying to you and honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen.